This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix. You're time for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and today I am not joined by my regular co-host, Monica Castillo. She is in Austin, Texas, covering South by Southwest. If you're following at film underscore geek underscore radio on Twitter, you've probably seen some of her updates, including a few red carpet videos. However, I'm pleased to be joined by a special guest who's taking her place today. He's a wonderful guy and almost as beautiful as she is. He is a contributor to Movie Mezzanine, Corey Atad. Welcome to CinemaFix. Uh, thank you for having me. No problem. This is episode number 40 of the show, and if you're listening and you're new to the show, basically this is the show on Film Geek Radio focused on in-depth discussion of mainstream blockbuster films. We are here to satisfy your addiction to quality conversation about the movies, and usually each week we release an episode in two parts, a spoiler-free review and a spoiler-filled review. But this week, we're, we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're just going to give some real quick spoiler-free thoughts after the clip, and then talk spoilers after that, all in the same file. So we're switching things up a bit. This week, the movie we're going to be talking about is Oz the Great and Powerful. It is meant to serve as a prequel of sorts to the 1939 film The Wizard of Oz. It stars James Franco as Oscar Diggs, a carnival magician who is swept by a tornado into the fantasy land of Oz and suddenly finds himself in the middle of a war between three witches, a couple of whom might be wicked. It also stars Mila Kunis, Rachel Weiss, and Michelle Williams, and it was directed by Sam Raimi. Here's a clip. How hard can it be to kill a wicked witch? Hard! Really hard! It's very, very hard to kill a wicked witch. And what about that poor girl back there? I think she really liked you. She'll get over me. They always do. She's a pretty young witch. There'll be plenty of wizards knocking at her door. Oh, every lie you tell gets us one step closer to the Emerald City dungeon. Don't think of them as lies. Think of them as stepping stones on the road to greatness. Wait, I got it. Or turn around and go back. You'll come clean. You apologize for lying about being the wizard and for lying to that poor girl, okay? You gotta really seem contrite. You gotta sell it. Maybe you can even cry. Can you cry? I could cut up an onion. I'm not going back. We're gonna find this wicked witch, steal her wand, I'll get that big pile of gold, and you can have a nice pile of bananas, all right? Bananas. Oh, I see. Because I'm a monkey, I must love bananas, right? That is a vicious stereotype. You like bananas? Of course I love bananas. I'm a monkey. Don't be ridiculous. I just don't like you saying it. To get started, Corey, let's just give some real quick spoiler-free thoughts on Oz the Great and Powerful. Did you like this movie? I did not. You did not like this movie? I did not, no. Why did you not like this movie? Whoa, that's a loaded question. Uh, <laughs> well, okay, I guess it's it, it would be fair to say I went in not expecting to like it, so that probably doesn't help my case. But I actually did like it more than I thought I would. Like, I was expecting Alice in Wonderland levels of bad, and it wasn't quite to that level, although I think <laughs> it, has, it has some similar problems. 
uh, mostly related to kind of the design of things, but that we can probably get into later. I don't know. The main thing for me was that just the story felt pretty hollow and just really lacking in like stakes on a really basic level. I I think kind of what the movie was trying to get you in on was this idea of James Franco playing Oz as this guy who's kind of a jerk, but, you know, maybe has a bit of a good heart within him and you're kind of watching the movie to see him redeem himself. But kind of the way that that's structured into the movie, it didn't work like on a narrative level. I just found it kind of like, okay, this is dull. Now this is happening. Now this is happening. And then by the end, I'm like, okay, so I guess they're going to do this now. And then it was over. So basically you just thought the story was really predictable. Not so much predictable, although I mean, look, it was predictable too. But I, I'm not going to fault it for being predictable. It was, it was really more just that, like, it felt like it was lacking in any real drama, and kind of the drama that was there felt pretty forced onto the story. Okay, I, I one of the reasons I wanted to invite you on today, Corey, is that I know we've talked some on Twitter, and you and I we frequently disagree <laughs> on a lot of stuff. And so I thought to myself, well, maybe I'll invite Corey on and we'll disagree and we'll be able to have a good discussion. And that is probably going to be the case because I actually liked this movie quite a bit. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. I, I went in, I, I saw the uh, trailer for it and thought, you know what? That could be good. It doesn't look terrible. It looks way better than Alice in Wonderland. And I was surprised at what this movie turned out to be. I can I can definitely understand how if you're looking at this movie, you know, from a narrative perspective, it's pretty simple. Not a whole lot of stuff is, is really surprising. And I will admit that I think the third act in particular has a lot of problems. Interesting. Okay. But on the whole, for most of the film, I was really enjoying myself. I was totally caught up in this fantasy world and the design of Oz. I thought there were some nice callbacks to the original. And it's weird because even though the narrative wasn't particularly innovative, I thought the movie worked really well as a character study of this guy, Oscar Diggs. And and, and the whole thing seemed to me, for most of the film at least, to, to sort of just be this cinematic unraveling of Oz's psyche. Who is this guy? And and different elements of who he is as a person will keep popping up, and he has to confront that. And in a weird way, it sort of reminded me of Spike Jones's Where the Wild Things Are, <laughs> <laughs> which I did not expect going in. But, but you know, it, it, it struck me as very similar. You know, you got a guy who goes off to a strange... Uh, magical place and is interacting with these strange creatures who in many ways are representative of himself and different elements of his psychology. Um, and on that level, I thought Oz the Great and Powerful was pretty successful, at least until the third act, which we can get into. But, but yeah, overall, I enjoyed myself and I came out of the theater going, man, that was Almost a great movie, but not quite. It, it, it's good. I will I will say that it is a good movie. It's a fun movie. Definitely one of the better films I've seen in 2013. Uh, not that that's saying much, necessarily. But I would recommend people go check it out. You're speechless, I can tell. 
Well, I'm not, I'm not speechless. Look, I mean, the, the movie has gotten some sort of positive response. I mean, I think it's largely kind of negative, although not, not like overly negative, but uh, certainly I've seen kind of enough positive reactions to the movie. So it's not entirely surprising. I don't know. I just felt like the story of this guy, like, I mean, you, you kind of described it as a, as a character study, which I, man, I suppose it is, but it felt much more like kind of your classic, you know, Han Solo style redemption arc, <laughs> except that, and, and this is, I, I don't know, I don't know how much to blame on the writing and how much to blame on uh, James Franco's performance, but I just didn't believe that in him. Like I, I could not really get invested in the character. So like, to me, you compare it to the the original movie, Wizard of Oz, right? And, you know, classic or not classic, the narrative in that is, like, extremely simple. So, you know, girl gets sucked up in a tornado, lands in Oz. She, all she wants to do is get home. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all she wants to do. And, and kind of she's sent on sort of a, a mission to be able to do that, to accomplish that. Um, and along the way, she meets some people and she gets on sort of some side quests, but but those are all kind of pushing towards this one goal that's very identifiable. Um, and actually, at the end of the movie, like when you think about it, pretty much everything that happens in The Wizard of Oz never mattered because she could have just tapped her slippers together and uh, and gotten home. But you right. know, it it still works kind of over the course of the movie, right? You, you feel like there's this goal that needs to be accomplished. Whereas in this movie, I just didn't feel that. And if the goal was sort of this understanding that James Franco would sort of redeem himself over time, that wasn't enough. And it certainly was like, it might have been enough, except that certainly James Franco's performance didn't make me care at all about uh, the journey of his character. He like, he seemed to me bored even to be there. So I, I will agree with you. Franco is definitely the weakest link in the cast. I thought his performance was okay. Yeah. It didn't bother me while I was watching the movie, but he doesn't quite have that, that sort of inherent trickster essence about him that sure. I think Oz really needs. And a, a lot of critics have, pointed out and I agree with them that you know, you know Bruce Campbell has a small little cameo in this movie and he would have made a far better Oz. Oh, 100%. Like very very clear. He might be a little bit old for that, but he he would have been fantastic because you would have at least been drawn to the character whereas James Franco you're not really drawn to him in any way. And and you're right, like I wasn't bothered by his character. It's just more when the narrative is so thin, you need to hang your hat on something. And when you can't even really like hang on to the lead character, that kind of becomes a problem. Right. At least, you know, I, I, th- that was kind of my major issue. I mean, I have other different issues with the movie, but kind of the the larger reason why it didn't work for me was was that. In regards to the performances, all I'll say is that you know Franco was the weakest link. Mila Kunis. Yeah, alternates between being pretty good and pretty cringe-inducing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can see what she was going for. I think, I think she was trying to capture that sort of over-the-top caricature yeah. quality of oh god, I forget the actress's name who played the Wicked Witch in in the original, but uh, um, but yeah, no, she she was kind of woefully miscast. Is is the real issue? I mean, James Franco, I think, was miscast as well. But, like, Mila Kunis so much hinges on that character and, and kind of how that character changes. And 
she just doesn't fit what that character is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Never mind the fact that I think that I would say the character motivations are suspect. Um, right. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk yeah. about that in a few minutes. Um, Margaret Hamilton. That's who oh, yeah, Margaret. I was thinking of. Yeah. Yes. I, th- I think she was trying to bring some of that into her performance, but it just did not quite work. Yeah, no. Because no. she was trying to, I think, bring a one-dimensional performance to a character where the the writers in this case were not trying to make the character one-dimensional. They were trying to make her a little bit more of a well-rounded person um, and not just a caricature. And that didn't quite mesh with some of the more over-the-top aspects of her performance. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I guess just to wrap up, our, our spoiler-free thoughts. I take it you would not recommend people go see it. I would not recommend people go see it, but I would recommend if people are going to see it that they go see it in 3D. I would recommend that as well. I saw it in yeah. 3D, and I thought the 3D was really great. And I actually think that the 3D adds some interesting elements to the film, which we'll talk about in a little bit. It's gimmicky, but you know, at least, at least Raimi goes for it. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's fun. I, I enjoyed it. Well, I would say run out and see Oz the Great and Powerful. It's not a fantastic movie, but it is really good. It is really enjoyable. Uh, it was much better than I expected. So I, I would recommend it, but let's talk spoilers. The thing that was interesting to me about Oz the Great and Powerful was that it, in many ways, at least on first glance, it's trying to present Oz as an actual, literal place that exists, that this guy is suddenly swept into. Unlike the original film, where Dorothy wakes up and it's implied it was all in her head, it could have all been a dream, mm-hmm. there's no ending like that here. Well, I suppose, but I think that has a lot more to do more to do with sort of the book series. Right. Like even the even the original movie, like yeah, it kind of gives the impression that it's all a dream, but certainly if you know anything about the books, the books kind of play with that a bit. Like it's never entirely clear whether Oz is a real place or not. And there's something interesting about that, actually. So uh, to me, I, I kind of enjoyed that aspect of this movie. Well, I actually liked that too, because the, there's the key line for me comes in the first act of the film when he first arrives in Oz and he meets Mila Kunis's character and she says, you know, that you're in Oz. And he just kind of looks at her and is like, wait, that's my name. And at that moment, that to me, it seemed like the writers were explicitly acknowledging, yes, the name of this whole place is Oz. His name is Oz. The, the two are inextricably linked. Oz the place is in many ways just an extension of Oz, this guy. Mm-hmm. And so once I heard that line and that explicit connection was made, I immediately started viewing the land of Oz through the lens of Oz, the character. Right. And that's when I thought it, it started to get really interesting because as a character, you can tell he's not a nice guy. He's got some flaws, and those come out while he's in Oz. But you also start to get some hints of things that he might want deep down that he just hasn't realized yet. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got the character of Finley, voiced by Zach Braff, who 
he treats just as someone he can boss around, but in many ways he's, he sort of looks to, friendly, to Finley for friendship. And then you've got China Girl, who brings out his more paternal instincts, which I thought was interesting, since in the opening prologue to the movie, he casts that aside and, and, and says that he doesn't really want to settle down and have a family. And I, I also thought it was really interesting that Michelle Williams here, she's not only playing Glinda the Good Witch, she also shows up in the very beginning as Oz's soon-to-be ex-girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And her last name is Gail, or excuse me, she's about to be married to a guy named Gail, indicating that she is possibly Dorothy's mother. Mm-hmm. So that, I thought, was a really clever connection to the original. And and I don't know, it just sort of really, I, I was really engaged by how the film was using these different people and these different characters that Oz meets to sort of get at who he is as a person and, and that conflict he feels between wanting to be loved, wanting to be great, wanting to be the center of everybody's universe, and at the same time also just kind of wanting to settle down. Does that make sense? It does. And, like, I can't disagree. I mean, the movie does touch on on, on kind of all of those elements that you mentioned, but I think that, for me, the biggest problem in that respect is the way it, it kind of simplifies the motivations and kind of the changes in motivations. And, and there is, you know, some interesting things going on with him. I mean, it's clear, for example... You know, in that scene with uh, at the beginning of the movie where he does the magic show and there's the little girl there who then shows up later as the little China girl. Right. You know, he he can't tell her that he can't fix her legs because like I forget what if he gives like a reason for not saying that. I I think he might like he doesn't want to expose himself as a fraud or something. Mm -hmm. But like you can tell in that moment that the real reason is that he just it, it would be too heartbreaking to tell her that. Right. And so there's there's kind of elements that run through, but I, I never felt like the movie properly paid off on them. And then kind of the biggest issue is that, you know, it uses these sort of romantic elements, uh, both with Mila Kunis's character and then later on with Michelle Williams, that just feel really, like, kind of unnecessary and, and false. Like, I, it's weird to say, but it, it really bothered me, the idea that... Um, like Oz basically is in Oz uh, with uh, Glinda the Good Witch. Like it's mm-hmm. it's a bit that felt like wrong. It felt like kind of a weird way to simplify this relationship. I don't know. It it I agree with you. The romance stuff, especially in the third act, really doesn't work. Especially because there's no. I mean, if, if the movie's trying to be a sort of semi-prequel to the 1939 film. There's no indication in that movie (laughs) that the wizard and Glinda have anything going on. No, exactly. And, and, and then on top of that with the wicked, with the wicked witch, this idea that she becomes the wicked witch because she feels she's been spurned. Like she's been spurned by, uh, by Oz. Like first, I mean, there's like, there's like, I guess, feminist issues with that, too. Well, well, well yeah, that's, I actually have that in my notes here. Something I wanted to talk about with you is is whether or not that is sexist, <laughs> sort of, to sort of make him... She, she she really is so obsessed with him that when he rejects her, she just turns wicked. Look, I don't want to say it's sexist, right? Because that that kind of implies sort of a more accusatory position like you know i i doubt that the people involved well, well obviously it, it would be it was unintended 
No, no, no. Right. So, so I, that, that's kind of what I'm trying to say is that like, I, I don't like to throw around the word sexist, but there's certainly kind of a problematic approach, especially in this day and age. And especially when it comes from a series that generally doesn't have those elements. In fact, uh, you know, Elizabeth Rapp over at film.com wrote an excellent piece about how, you know, the history of the Oz series in, in books and in the movies is always like, you know, these great female lead characters and, and there's not really any romance usually. And it's, and it's, it's kind of a great series for, for young girls to read in that sense. And then, and then you have this movie where like the producer of the movie was quoted as saying that, you know, part of the reason he wanted to make it was because apparently he sees that there are too few male leads in fairy tale films. And so like, (laughs) this was a great opportunity. And you're right, because there are never princes who get to save the damsel in stress right. in fairy tales. And and so it's like, you you do get this sense that, like, part of what makes this movie tick is this idea that there's a male lead, and then kind of everything revolves around that. So, like, the most dynamic characters in the movie are actually the female characters. But because you have a male lead at the center, you need to find a way to attach themselves and kind of the, the lazy way to do that in at least two of the characters was to have kind of a romantic attachment. And then for the third character, it's to play on the romantic attachment of one of the other characters. Right. Um, and then, and then kind of the really interesting part is that for me, the, the one character who really stood out as being a great character was the little China girl who mm-hmm. th- there is definitely a, a relationship that she has with Oz, but it has nothing to do with, you know, a romantic relationship. It's just, you know, it's almost a paternal relationship and, and it's, to me, that was quite, it was actually quite moving. Like, there were points where I was getting a little misty-eyed when it Oh, when sure. It was, Every, everything with the China girl, I agree, is, yeah. it's the best scenes of the movie. No, she, that, the whole conception of that character was fantastic. And, and I think that that points to, to almost what this movie could have done and the kind of movie it could have been, you know? I'm not going to say, you know, people, you, you can say that the gender politics of the movie are a bit disconcerting. And, and I can definitely see, how people would come away with that. It worked for me overall, especially in the first half, just because, as you mentioned, Oz is a land populated with powerful women. I mean, Oz shows up here, and he he's the fish out of water. He's not from around there. He doesn't know what's going on. And it's these three women who are fighting for control of everything. Right. And yet at the same time, because I was viewing everything through the lens of Oz and and his psychology, it didn't really bother me a whole lot when all of these women started kind of to become obsessed with him. Because the first half of the movie makes it very clear that Oz is in many ways his fantasy. Uh, this right. is the place where he can make the little girl walk again. This is the place where he can have all the money. This is where he can be this great and influential person. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, in his fantasy, he's going to be the center of attention. All the women are going to want him. They're going to fight over him. And I think what the writers were going for, you know, whether or not they succeeded in the execution is up for debate. But I think what they were going for is they were they were trying to come up with an arc where he would gradually move from this fantasy world into being confronted with the ramifications of those fantasies 
and the conflict of those fantasies versus what actually happens right. in real life. And that worked for me for most of the movie, and then in the final act, it, it sort of seemed like they just threw all of the interesting character psychology stuff to the side, and were just kind of like, well, let's have a big action scene with some cool CGI effects, right. and then, you know, that'll be our big finish. Yeah. And, and so from a character perspective, I didn't feel like they really wrapped it all up. Right. Well, I mean... I guess I would say that, like, it's very possible that you're right in terms of the intention, you know, how the movie's constructed. I think that it it fails, again, partly because just the way James Franco plays it, I'm like, why would any of these girls be, like, he doesn't show any interest in them. It's so bizarre. But then, actually, the the third act of the movie, where it kind of drops a lot of that stuff, is is the part of the movie where I was kind of the most engaged. It was still not very good. Like, I wouldn't say it was very well done, but at least it felt like there was sort of a more clear goal that was being moved towards. And I was like, okay, I can at least go along with the action. Kind of the first section of the movie I was a little bit more bored by. Interesting. Yeah. It's weird because I I was disappointed by the third act, but at the same time, I was sort of interested in it for different reasons. Like, it, it just feels very disconnected from the rest of the movie. Yeah, it, 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 feel, totally. it, it just feels like a totally separate thing that they're trying to do. You know, they spend the first two thirds trying to get into this psychological exploration of Oz as a character. And then suddenly in the third act, it's almost like a celebration of his lies and the fact that he's a trickster. I was reading the review over at Crave Online by friend of the show, William Bibiani. And he pointed out, that in many ways that third act is a celebration of cinema and a celebration of 3D and that idea that, yeah, it's all tricks and it's all gimmicks, but it fools us and we love it. And and, and that's great. Well, it it also on a, on a more kind of base level, it, you know, being a prequel to the wizard of Oz, he, his character, you know, those elements of the character can't disappear because they're so crucial to like how the character then continues. Right. So it's like, it made sense to me. The, the other problem that I that I did really have with the movie um, was not really anything thematic, I guess, but it, it was really just like that the movie didn't feel like earnest enough in a way. Um, mm-hmm. and, and sort of the ending has this really earnest quality to it that I felt like the rest of the movie didn't earn because it kept like playing on like, a you know, this really ironic like ironically detached sense of humor. It's like, oh, look at Oz. Oh, look at this silly thing. And oh, look at this weird thing here. And then it's like, for me, the the big moment, and I, I tweeted this, I tweeted about this after I saw the movie, was there's the moment where the munchkins start dancing and singing. Mm-hmm. And like, it's you know, they purposely make it extremely over the top, especially compared to The Wizard of Oz. They make it so over the top that it becomes ridiculous and almost annoying. And then you have James Franco going like, no, stop singing, stop it. And they stop singing. And all I could think was like, you know, if this is supposed to be a prequel to The Wizard of Oz, and in some ways a lot of it is a tribute, you know, for rights reasons, not everything could be exactly the same, but, you know, as much as possible, they tried to stick to the original movie. And yet the original movie is so pure and so lovely and so earnest. And it's and it's a musical and it's like a fun little movie and it's got some scary scenes, but it's they're almost more scary because you're really invested in the characters in a really like heartfelt way. And then in this movie, any time that there was anything remotely heartfelt, they undercut it. And I was like, why Like, why do you need to do that? I mean, and to me, that's kind of a more general problem with a lot of 
family entertainment these days, kind of in the post-Disney Renaissance era, uh, particularly mm-hmm. the post-Shrek era, where it's like, you know, you need to play for adults, and adults are too cool for school, and, you know, it's like everything needs to have a, a layer of ironic detachment to it. And what's funny is that, again, the the one element of the movie that just pl- worked really well for me was the little China girl. Mm-hmm. And everything to do with her was done so earnestly. And I'm like, well, then there's your problem. You know, if the rest of the movie had played its heart on its sleeve in that way, you know, and you can still have Oz being the guy who's like, you know, dubious of everything. But if if the whole world around you kind of sucks you into that and then you could really feel like the character himself gets sucked into it this this earnest feeling but instead the movie kind of enjoys playing with that and and especially with the zach braff flying monkey character constantly making these quips on the side and it's like it's mm-hmm. even some of them were funny but it's almost like they're funny but to what at what cost you know it, it's interesting you say that because i didn't have a problem overall with the tone about the movie just because I came at it feeling like, you know, this is this is Oz. He's not an earnest guy. He's I, not going to have very many earnest moments except, as you mentioned, you know, when he's starting to realize certain things about himself or act out certain fantasies, as with the China girl. I'm wondering if you feel that's a writing problem or if you feel that's a directing issue because – Sam Raimi, I mean, he's that, that that's his bread and butter. I mean, he takes these very fantastic elements and often will play them as camp. That's true and I and you're probably right that like a lot of that in terms of this particular movie comes down to Sam Raimi. I mean, like clearly there's a lot of it in the writing too, but a lot of it is in the directing. But I think that in general it's probably just a problem I have with sort of the state of Hollywood. And like, I look at, I look at this movie or I look at even at Alice in Wonderland where it's like, okay, so you take this story and you make it like more epic and we're going to make it, you know, cool. And you're going to see these crazy landscapes and they're all going to be designed in such a way that like, to me, the, the world of Oz here, it was bright and colorful, but somehow it wasn't inviting. Like it, there was this weird kind, like everything felt like a little bit off. Do you know what I mean? And like, there were a lot, there was this recurring thing in there of, um, these sort of like stone arches just like built into the landscape that felt like really eerie, but not, not in like a way that the movie was trying to be scary or something, but just like, it's going to be this odd element to this universe and we're going to have these epic shots. And I guess it's a problem. It really is a problem I have with sort of this general approach. So it's it's somewhere in between Peter Jackson and Tim Burton. Yeah, and and I think that Hollywood has kind of latched onto this idea of taking stories and doing them this way. Oh, we're going to give them an edge. You know what I mean? It's not it's not going to feel light and fluffy. It's going to feel edgy. So even when it's bright and colorful, it's going to feel edgy and and you know modern. And I'm like, that's you know that's bull. Sometimes good old fashioned entertainment is is a nice thing, and sometimes it's it's really sorely missing. And I think that. You know, there's a there's a place, a time and a place for that kind of approach. And, you know, I, I can give you an example of somewhere where it, where it actually worked for me was um, uh, last year, Snow White and the Huntsman. Oh, I actually still haven't seen that. Yeah, a lot of people didn't like that. I thought it was very good. You know, not not amazing or anything, but I thought it was it was a really solid, entertaining movie, really cool special effects, action sequences. You know, the miscasting of the lead wasn't the greatest thing, but it worked. The gender politics in it, I thought, were really well handled, so that was nice. But but also just that general approach of, like, this darker version of Snow White, 
it worked because it felt like natural to this world that they created within the movie. Whereas this one, because especially because it's playing so much on the original Wizard of Oz. And so like it's constantly bringing that memory back to my mind. And my memory of Wizard of Oz was like, you know, Oz is this wondrous place. And, and, and it's ridiculous because in that, you know, there's so many shots where you can, you can see so plainly that everything is like a painted backdrop and everything, but it, that's almost good because it feels handmade and it feels inviting and warm. And I get that this movie doesn't need to feel, it's, it's not meant to feel quite as warm, mm-hmm. but it, it's missing that kind of earnest playfulness. Um, and I think that a lot of the playfulness in the movie tends to be a bit, a bit harder edged and a bit, almost meaner, which is kind of, I don't know, it's a little bit disappointing. And, and again, I get, I get that this is Sam Raimi, so, you know, it's to be expected. But, you know, then it becomes the fault of the producers in, in how they approach the movie. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's a tough balance to strike. You know, how do you make a prequel to this classic older film that is in many ways very, as you mentioned, pure and very innocent, and yet, how do you also raise the stakes for modern audiences? How do you make it a bit darker? How do you appeal to modern sensibilities? Overall, I feel like Raimi succeeded in trying to keep things a little bit dark, but also trying to be playful. I mean, the the, the prologue in particular. Yeah, the prologue is pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I and but but I'll 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 kind of point out something else, which is that to me, there was, there was nothing in this movie that was scarier than, you know, some of the scenes in, in the original movie. Mm. And and I think that a lot of even modern audiences would agree, you know, like the scenes of the flying monkeys in the original movie are kind of terrifying. And like, for me, one of the most terrifying, like, actually it's not, not even images. It's, it's a sound from uh wizard of Oz is um, uh, the, the guards at the witch's castle Right. And they're like marching and going like, oh, we, oh, and, it, and I don't know why but that it just like creeps me out. And it's still like pure in a way. Right. And, and simple, but it's, it's base and it gets at these like base fears. And then it, what's funny is actually like this movie has those same guards, but I guess because they don't have the rights, they couldn't have them like chanting that same chant. So they're just like walking around going like, Oh, Oh, Oh. And it was, it was actually kind of comical. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know what the deal is with the rights. I haven't really read into it and stuff, but it's basically that like Disney after was, or at some point after wizard of Oz was made, Disney, I think bought up all the rights to the, to the stories, but anything that was original to the MGM movie, is owned by Warner Brothers. So like potentially Warner Brothers could sue them for like stealing iconography from, from that movie. If it's specific to that, to the movie, you know what I mean? So like, I think the, for example, when you see the yellow brick road, it looks the same as the original movie, but I think that's because, or maybe it looks slightly different. I don't know. It's hard to say. But I'm sure the yellow brick roads in the book. Well, the yellow brick roads in the book, but like, let's say the image of the yellow brick road, uh, they might've like changed it subtly so that, you know, they can point, you know, their lawyers can say, oh, well, look, it's slightly different. Well, well, Um, well, that's interesting that you bring that up because even though in some ways I feel Oz the Great and Powerful connects to the original pretty well, you know, it's got the whole prologue and black and white and different aspect ratio. Uh, there's a cameo by the Cowardly Lion. You know, there, there's a bunch of little nods to the original movie. The movie ended, and I just suddenly sat back and went, wait, 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 wait. 
what about the slippers? <laughs> you know, when are the Ruby slippers going to make an appearance? Those were specific to the uh, to the MGM movie, right? I mean, I was like, what, wait, what about the Wicked Witch of the East? What about her crazy socks? Yeah, right, what exactly. about you know? What about uh, the crazy doorman? Yeah, and 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 what's funny is that like um, if you notice in all the marketing and everything, they're you know even the interviews and whatever, they're very careful not to say that it's a prequel. You know what I mean? Because they're like, no, it's not technically a prequel, like because we don't actually own Wizard of Oz. That, that, that's interesting. I, I couldn't figure out if that stuff wasn't in there for legal reasons or if it was because they went in thinking, oh, maybe we'll be able to make a sequel where we explain some of this stuff. Because I, I believe in the book they aren't ruby slippers. I believe they're silver shoes. Right. Yeah. I, I, yeah. You're right. And so, and and silver wouldn't work in a color film. That's why they made them ruby, right? Like Technicolor, right? Um, but yeah, then you can't have this movie have them silver because then people would be like, "What the hell?" Um, <laughs> yeah. No. So, but but I guess kind of like getting back to what I what I was trying to say was, was that you know the original movie has frightening scenes and and the stakes feel really high, like. They actually send them on a quest to go kill the Wicked Witch, and they kill the Wicked Witch by throwing water that is basically like acid and melting her. And it's like, that's kind of awful and horrifying, but it's great. And and this movie, for some reason, never felt like it achieved that, and it kind of like it did these things like, you know, when the Wicked Witch changes into the Wicked Witch and her like hand like scrapes along the table and stuff like that, and you know, it felt very Raimi-ish, right? Um, right. Or like actually when uh, Wicked Witch of the East turns all ugly at the end and looks so much like the uh, crazy gypsy lady in uh, Drag Me to Hell, which that was actually kind of terrifying. But but like, again, that was like practical makeup. So I was pretty, pretty impressed. It's interesting you bring up the scene with the uh, the hand just because I, I, I've been thinking about it, I've been thinking about that review that William Bibiani wrote about how he was pointing out how the third act basically turns the movie into an ode to cinema and cinema as escapism and cinema as cheap tricks. And I was thinking, you know, there's so many references to not just the original Wizard of Oz, but other movies yeah. in here, particularly references to films that really contributed to film technology or film special effects. I mean, you've got the one Wicked Witch doing the Force Lightning from Star Wars. Mm-hmm. You've got the 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 uh, the scene with the hand where she's transforming into the Wicked Witch, which is a callback to Snow White yeah. um, and the original cel-shaded animation. Yeah, some really interesting yeah. stuff that I'm not sure quite works <laughs> with the rest no. of the movie, but it's but it's interesting from a thematic perspective and and also just as a film buff that they would be that they would have all these references in there definitely yeah no it it, you know there was there were a lot of little touches like that and and for that i really can like point to raimi because like i mean quite frankly even a even a movie like spider-man 3 which is you know quite awful Mm -hmm. has so many of these like ridiculous raimi touches you know, the dance sequence comes to mind, which like, I enjoy that dance sequence because I'm like, the, you know, the rest of the movie is kind of dull and this is hilarious. Right. You know, so, so this movie benefits a lot from that, especially like compared to Alice in Wonderland, which I, you know, that's gotta be one of the worst movies I've ever seen. And, <laughs> and that one, you know, not only 
does it have all those kind of Hollywood issues that I pointed to in terms of the production? But then on top of that, you've got Tim Burton's like really dour tone. And it just like, ugh, that movie was such a chore to sit through. Um, and this one, even though I would say I didn't like it, like I didn't think it was a very good movie, it had enough of those touches throughout that at least there was always something for me to kind of latch on to, mm-hmm. even when it wasn't kind of the, the overall movie. Like, I, I, was, I was like, I don't care what's happening at all, but like, oh, look at that over there, or oh, look at this weird canted angle for no reason. I, I think even though we disagree as to how good of a movie it is, I think we can both agree that it's messy and that it's a really interesting mess. In, yeah, I would, okay. I would say that it's an interesting mess Okay, I wouldn't say it's an interesting mess. I think that the <laughs> the messiness of it is boring, but the there are still those touches that uh, don't really feel messy to me. You know what I mean? Like okay. a lot of the Raimi touches, they don't feel like part of the mess. They almost feel like part of a potentially better movie. Just kind of the rest of the movie didn't didn't work out. But I mean, it, those things are just to me an example of like, okay, Raimi, step back. You don't need to be doing these like. $200 million movies, just keep making drag me to hell type movies or like the gift and I'll be okay. <laughs> like, it's, you know, that's all I need. Right. Well, he has said he will not be returning for a sequel. So. Oh, that's good. Who knows? Maybe, maybe we'll get someone better. Maybe we'll get something worse. You know, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. Uh, any, any final thoughts on Aussie right and powerful? We've been talking for quite a while. Anything else you want to say about this movie before we wrap up? Anything else I want to say? I, okay, I would just like to reiterate the little China girl. Fantastic. Give, give her her own movie. She's a fantastic character. Joey King deserves a spinoff. Yeah. Well, well voiced, well performed. The CGI on her was like incredible. Like there were so many shots where I was like, wait a second. Are there elements of her that are like like real China? I was so, when he was reattaching the legs, I was like, "Is are those real? They might have been actually." But the the CGI was just so flawless on her specifically right. that like I bought every moment, as opposed to the monkey, which never looked real. Um, but like she just looked perfect. So if you're gonna see the movie, go see it for her. To be honest, uh, yeah, I, I would agree with you there. That scene and just her whole character, I think really is where you start to see Oz as an extension of James Franco's character. Oz. Yeah. And, and that part, that aspect of the movie is what engaged me the most. So mm-hmm. I, I agree with you there. That'll wrap it up for our episode on Oz, the great and powerful here on cinema fix. Uh, don't forget to tune in next week when we'll be discussing the incredible Burt Wonderstone. <laughs> Will it be incredible? I don't know. What, what What's up with all these movies with these really insane adjectives? Oz the Great and Powerful, the incredible Burt Wonderstone. The I, amazing Spider-Man. The amazing Spider-Man. It, it, they're really trying to sell you. <laughs> you should you should see this movie. And they're, and they're also begging for really bad puns and reviews. Yes. Review headlines, yeah. Yes. <laughs> all right. We'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes, so if you like this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the show. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. Corey, where can people find you online? On Twitter at CoreyAtad and writing at moviemezzanine.com. Yeah, you've been writing some good stuff for them. You wrote a really cool essay about 
the master and the theme of uh, urges versus desires. And I actually thought of that when I was watching Oz, the great and powerful thinking about, I was thinking, okay, what is, what are Oz's urges and what is he, what does he really desire deep down? You were thinking of that while watching Oz when you could have been rewatching the master and (laughs) man, but we're not going to get into the master right now. (laughs) All right. All right. We'll have to have you on for another podcast to talk about the master because you and I could get into quite a debate about the merits of that movie. <laughs> All right. I'm Andrew Johnson. You can find some of my writing at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener and I will follow you back. That'll do it for this episode of Cinema Fix. Uh, have a good week and have fun getting high on cinema. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!